0: I I wanted to wrap up the series... ...Atheists Are Made... ...Not Born. This is the fifth. And I wanted to wrap it up this morning. And then tonight we'll wrap up... ...Union with Christ. Why it's not just religious pretending. Looking at what it means to be adopted... ...as sons and daughters of God. Adopted in Christ. There's a text... Romans chapter 1, 18 to 27, that we're going to be studying this morning. It's 28 minutes after 10, and I really want to get through this topic, because uh, the title this morning is, The Denial of God, Hence Atheists Are Made Not Born, The Denial of God and Sexual Immorality. And the reason I switched and did this this morning... ...is because there is a link in this text... ...that I don't think is often seen. And unless you see everything that Paul is trying to say... ...it's very easy to see half of his argument... ...but not the whole of it. Romans 1, 18 to 27... ...and I I, I don't read a long text like this all that often... ...I'm going to read this right through. Follow along carefully... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We took a week on that. For what can be shown about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things ...that have been made. So they, that's those who know the truth and suppress it... ...they are without excuse. For although they knew God... ...they did not honor Him as God... ...or give thanks to Him... ...but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools... ...and exchanged the glory of the immortal God... ...for images resembling mortal man... ...and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... ...so here's here's the result. Therefore, God gave them up... ...in the lusts of their hearts to impurity... ...to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves... ...because they exchanged the truth about God... ...for a lie. And worshipped and served... ...now here's the nature of that lie... worshipped and served the creature... ...rather than the creator... ...who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... ...that's like the therefore... ...at the beginning of verse 24... ...for this reason God gave them up... ...to dishonorable passions... ...for their women exchanged... ...natural relations... ...for those that are contrary to nature... And the men likewise, so I I take the likewise in 27 to give an indirect reference to the kind of sin that's more um, vaguely described of the women in the first part of 27. There's a similarity is what Paul is saying. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pray. Where would we go for truth that transcends the dominant viewpoint of our culture? Where would we go for ideas that stand eternally even if they become socially unacceptable. Where would we go to escape the relativism of a world whose viewpoints change on so many things with the passing of centuries? Where would we go for truth we can build our lives on? Except your word. And I pray that you'll help us as we study it today to be true to your, true to your spirit, true to the text. And that you would make it helpful and life-giving to all of us in the body of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We both know that what happens in our world is the issue of same-sex intercourse and attraction just has become such an evangelical hot-button it's not an issue or shouldn't be an issue of loving or not loving people with same-sex attractions. Any hatred expressed toward gay human beings is unchristian. Just as accepting the practice of homosexuality is unchristian. The, the passage before us today isn't unique in its condemnation of homosexuality. There is no positive ...reference to same-sex relations, sexual relations in the scripture. None. There are other passages besides this one in Romans 1... ...condemning this sin. What is unique about today's text... is, ...is the meaning it gives to homosexual practice. This passage, unlike any other... Frames the whole issue of homosexuality. Gives gives the big picture of same-sex attraction. One other thing to notice in our text today. It's certainly true and important to remind ourselves that the Bible condemns all sexual immorality. The Bible has far more to say about immoral heterosexuality Sexual practice before marriage and outside of marriage has far more to say about that than it does about homosexuality. But, the only unique feature of homosexuality is is the current inclination to take a sinful temptation and define an identity by it. We don't do that with any other sexual sin. No one says, I, Of course, I run around on my wife and have affairs. It's just my, I'm just oriented that way. But we do with homosexuality. We take a sexual temptation and use it to define an identity. But it is still true that we are all heterosexual and homosexual. We are all, through the fall, we are all oriented. ...wrongly if we are governed purely by our own desires, every one of us. We're all oriented wrongly. Everyone in this room. That being the case, it is strange and striking to me that... ...in today's text, Paul, he limits... ...aims his sexual comments... Uh, specifically and exclusively to immorality of a homosexual nature. And, and it makes you say, why, Paul? Why is that the case? That when you talk about rebellion against God and an abandonment of God's values, why is it this, just this sexual sin? Because we know it isn't the only sexual sin. Why this one? Why does that fit the argument of your text in a way that heterosexual sin doesn't? That's something we need to think about. The final point I want to make... ...is this is the closing message in our series on atheism. And this text, more than any other I know of... ...it it binds together... ...the suppression of divine revelation... ...with the sin of same-sex intercourse... In this link, I don't mean that this text states all sexually immoral people deny God's existence. That's not my point. Plainly, that's not the case. But there is still a link with suppressing divine revelation and committing homosexual sin. And that's, that's the link I want to I pin down. I want to process that link this morning. Point number one. The dividing point in our text, the great dividing point, comes at verse 24 and and it marks a very important emphasis in Paul's argument. I think think it's so important to begin here because it forms the whole logic of Paul's big picture argument. Now just pause again and look at the flow of ideas as verse 24 becomes the heart of the text. So look at 1... 22 to 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I want to talk about that. Exchanged the glory. There it is. Claiming to be wise. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart ...to impurity... ...to the dishonoring of their bodies... ...among themselves... ...because... ...there it is again... ...that's the same as that... ...they exchanged the truth about God for a lie... ...worshiped and served the creature... ...that's that's self... ...my view... ...my understanding... ...my longings... ...my desires... ...the the creature... ...they served the creature... ...they worshipped and served the creature... ...rather than the creator... ...who is blessed forever... Amen. Now notice very carefully. Before our text this morning, the last time Paul mentions a specific action of God in this letter is Romans 118. You know these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Here's the subject. It's the wrath of God. That's what he's talking about. It's revealed from heaven... ...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... ...who by their unrighteousness... ...we've seen this before too in our text... ...suppress the truth. So God is revealing his wrath in one eighteen, ...against man's suppression of the truth. That's all Paul says about God's wrath. I mean, it's not described in very much detail. Until, in our text... ...he picks up that very same subject again in verse 24. Therefore God... Gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, so we're learning something. The way God reveals his wrath, 118. He doesn't say how in 118. He just says God reveals his wrath from heaven. What does he do? Does he strike everybody dead? No. How does he reveal his wrath in 118? Well, he's going to unpack that. But 118 doesn't tell us how God reveals his wrath. The way he reveals his wrath... ...is he gives them up... ...to what they worship in their hearts. You see that in 24. So they refuse to honor God as God. 21. They rely on their own wisdom, what seems right, proper, fair, what's acceptable. They rely on their own wisdom, what seems right and fair to the prevailing culture. And, and make no mistake, church, divine revelation will always appear unrealistic and intolerant when measured by the prevailing culture. Does everybody understand that? Divine revelation will always appear unreasonable and intolerant when measured by the prevailing culture. That's not new. Think about this. Satan doesn't have to work to prove divine revelation untrue. That would be a horrible task. He couldn't do it. He doesn't have to. Satan does not have to work to prove divine revelation untrue. He merely makes it appear unreasonable, measured by the view of the surrounding cultural perspective. He makes divine revelation socially unacceptable. A much easier task than proving it to be untrue. But Paul's point in verse 22 is... The voice of culture has exchanged divine revelation for human desires. They served, 25, the creature rather than the creator. Those are the sins, all right? This is what mankind has consistently done. And, says Paul, God has revealed his wrath against these sins, One eighteen. And that's where that therefore, in verse 24, enters the picture. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So this, this giving them up is the most terrible form of God's wrath. It's the most terrible form because it lacks the dramatic instant pain that other forms of God's judgment often bring. Jonah, swallowed by a whale. Surprise, surprise, he repents. I would too. (laughs) The children of Israel, bitten by poisonous snakes, cry out to God, I would too. Ananias and Sapphira... ...struck dead... ...dragged out of the service. The church gets really serious about God. You would too. But when God gives people up... ...to their own desires... ...there's no incentive left to repent we're left we're left wondering where all the pain and brokenness is coming from i mean our sin starts to look more and more normal to us and god seems to pay less and less attention to it things just just begin to smooth out in the sinful ruts and patterns of the course of this age and and this is the terrible this is the rationale behind that fevered recruitment of the wicked for additional sinners Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, by the way, that's talking about the Old Testament law where these things brought that death penalty. It's not talking about today this is what we do with everybody. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, look at these words. They give approval. They give their approval to those who practice them. You know what they give to people who don't practice them? Disapproval. Note that word, approval. No one likes being disapproved. As more and more people approve of any sin... Hear me. As more and more people approve of any sin... ...that sin takes on legitimacy. After all, everyone can't be wrong. And so, a culture dumps disapproval on the only place left... ...in a fallen culture, God and those who honor him. And so, here's the life lesson. When God judges by giving a culture over to its own sin... The result is it becomes more and more difficult for that culture and the church in that culture to imagine that God could ever be against something that's so widely accepted and justified. How could he be? God's revelation then appears less and less reasonable to culturally adjusted sin. We know this is true. If, you'll, if you have the courage and take a minute, pretend it's possible to do time travel. Pretend it's possible for you to enter some kind of portal. Imagine some science fiction thing. And you can set the dial. So we all do it this morning, okay? Funny. And we set the dial to what? 19... 19- 35, all right. in terms of human history that's not a long time ago and in we go and instantly we're back all of us you're in Canada 1935 and you find that even though you've been in church all your life you're not quite used to the shift in moral perspective because you suddenly realize that that no one that you bump into at least openly approves of same-sex relations nobody i don't mean christians i mean anybody was there tv in 1935 let's pretend For sure, you turn it on and and there's, there's no sitcom on TV that even mentions a gay couple. There's no mention of homosexuality in any classroom, in any school in the country. There isn't a university professor anywhere endorsing a gay lifestyle. There's no adoption agency that will even consider a gay couple as candidates for a child. There is no politician anywhere on the horizon who in campaigning pushes for any kind of gay agenda and equal human rights. Now, now my point here, please don't misunderstand me. My point here is not that there weren't gay people in 1935. That's ridiculous. I'm not even saying there weren't as many as there are today. That's not my point. But here's what I know for sure. Every Christian in 1935 found it easier to accept that God's revelation in the scripture was totally opposed to it. No one in the church found it unreasonable that God opposed same sex intercourse. Nobody in the church found that unreasonable. And the reason is simple. The reason is simple. God's revelation seemed a better fit... ...into at least society's public framework of sexuality in 1935. I'm not saying there were were more Christians. I'm not saying people were more godly. That's not my point. I'm simply saying God's revelation was a better fit... ...in the mindset of the church in 1935 than it is in 2016... The only difference is, in 2016, God's revelation, though exactly the same, I think we'd agree, it hasn't changed, has it, since 1935? So, so the scriptural revelation is exactly the same, but it doesn't make as much sense to our world. Do you all see what I'm saying? It doesn't fit on this subject, especially And what you're looking at, in that silly illustration that I just gave... ...what you're looking at is the fruit of Paul's words, 124... ...therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts... ...to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. After that kind of incremental, gradual judgment from God... The result is his standards appear less and less reasonable. And that is exactly what Paul was driving at when he said in verse 22... ...claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is not some mouthy mob screaming with clenched fists... ...we're wiser than you are, God, so there. People don't say that. This is a calmly reasoned, rationally argued position that God's revelation... That just doesn't seem fair anymore to me, Pastor Don. I know some really nice people. This revelation hurts a lot of lonely people. God seems so narrow-minded. This is the kind of religion that just breeds intolerance in this world. Surely this kind of thinking needs to evolve and catch up. That's, That's the essence, okay, of humanly exalted wisdom. It defines its own conclusions as a better wisdom than God's revelation. And the result is a, a morphing of an imaginary God, Allah Bell, who is just like us. That part of the text we've studied before, I've talked about before, up to verse twenty four. Suppressing the truth, Claiming human wisdom, the failure of divine revelation to fit in today's culture, and the pressure of today's culture on the church to morph God's revelation into a different position. We've talked about all that. The second point is, to me, the part of the link in Paul's argument that doesn't get talked about very much, and I'm going to try hard to get this done. Point number two. I want to look at God's lesson on how he expects us to learn about invisible facts. Romans 1, 19 and 20. The first suppression of truth is dealt with in 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. What has he shown them? Well, it's strange, because look how he's going to continue in verse 20. For his invisible attributes. So he's going to list some things now that you can't see. His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And so that's how, right, God has shown it to them. In the things that have been made. That's how God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. So, the whole of Romans 1 stands on the logic of these verses. Paul's whole argument hangs on these words. And his whole logic is simple. God's revelation of himself moves from the visible... ...to the invisible. No one can see God's divine nature... ...or his eternal power. Power is invisible until it does something. God's divine nature is spirit. Not like us. You can't see him in his divine state. Okay? So how does God... ...take things that are invisible to our eyes... And how does he reveal them to us? Things we can't see. How does he give us information? And Paul says, well, it's not hard to perceive these realities. In fact, he says these realities are virtually impossible to, to miss. They are, in his words, verse 20, clearly perceived. And it is, verse 20, inexcusable for anybody not to know about them. So, so God unveils... His revelatory method. Yes, there are things invisible to the naked eye. But just because they're invisible doesn't make them unknowable. There's a pathway. There's a clear pathway into invisible truth. Verse 20, in the things that have been made. Don't make it complicated. Look at what's been made. That's where the truth lies. Look at what has been made. That is where the truth lies. Stay with me now. Point number three. The logic that Paul applies to knowing an invisible God... ...through what is made... ...he also applies to human sexuality. 24 to 28... Therefore God gave them up, there's the wrath of God, it was talked about in 118, now it's explained in 24. Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations, for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The due penalty, by the way, I, I've read... I won't say who, because a lot of you, I'm sure, see him on TV, but just the ridiculous, you shouldn't even have to say it, argument that what he's talking about here is HIV-AIDS. Which, th- Please... The context makes it clear. Receiving the due penalty for their error is God's giving them over more and more to their own ways. It's blindness. And justifying what they do. That's what's being talked about here. It's not some disease. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here it is, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now focus here just for the last 15 minutes. The exact meaning of the middle of verse 24. I have 133 commentaries on the Book of Romans in my library, and the exact meaning of the middle of verse 27 is hotly debated. Where it says, um, "Sorry, just before in 26, there women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature." My own view is that both, verse 26 and 27, describe same-sex relations. That's my view. I think that's what Paul means in 27 when he says, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women. So that's clearly talking about a homosexual relation, and the fact that he says likewise, it's like the women, but nothing stands on it, but that's my view. And that takes us right to the question I raised earlier. ...given there are so many forms of distorted and forbidden sexual relations... ...heterosexual and homosexual... Why, ...why Paul's exclusive emphasis in this passage on same-sex relations? And I believe that the best explanation is found in the context we have just been analyzing. Remember, Paul is simply continuing the same argument recognizing divine truth from what has been made. He's continuing the very same point from verse 20. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In the things that have been made. Same-sex relationships aren't more sinful than other sexual sins. But they do most clearly serve Paul's purpose in this chapter. They are the most vivid example of not looking at how something has been made. Do I need to explain that to anybody? In the things that have been made, you and I, we've been made. We've been made in certain ways. We ourselves, if you take Paul's whole argument, we are a part of the revelatory process. Invisible, intangible, unseeable aspects of your being, there certainly are. You can't see sexual orientation. You can't see what is increasingly labeled as aspects of fluid gender. Nobody can see those things. Did you read the National Post, October? On the stance of the University, professor, university of Toronto professor, Jordan Peterson. Anybody read that? This is a quote... So, just to save time, he is a professor at University of Toronto, and they have uh, endorsed a policy where you don't use masculine or feminine pronouns. He, his, her, hers. And so what they've done is they've created whole new words. Z, zim, zur. You know, you read this and you go, no, this is an April Fool's thing. It's not. Quote, by now, most of the country is familiar with the story of one professor, Jordan Peterson, at the University of Toronto, who has expressed strong and vivid dissent over the university's attempt to force him to use certain words, ersatz pronouns, a batch of neologisms, z, zim, zir, and a raft of others in place of he or She coined by progressive groups intended to apply to students who self-identify as other than the archaic and obsolete designations for men and women. Professor Peterson will not use these new cant words. He will not be ordered by the university or pressured by activists to take their words and put them in his mouth. He goes further and insists that it's an abandonment of academic freedom and freedom of speech more generally for the university or others to insist or attempt to mandate such a practice. He has made three videos arguing his case. He points out the ideological forces, the political agenda behind language, politics, and correctly argues and identifies that there is far more at stake in this instant than some local gripe about grammatical commonplaces on the single campus. As a consequence, Peterson so far has received two letters of reprimand and warning. He may lose his job because, he says, his book, Her Car... Everybody say it with me. Professing themselves to be wise, they became. What most Christians miss is there are more at stake than just human rights here. We're not prattering about human rights. I understand that that's all the world has to go to. This is an issue the Apostle Paul saw coming. When you want to see God's revelation on invisible things, orientation, gender, his whole argument, I'm not making it up, I took way too much time showing it, his whole argument is, when it comes to these unseen unseen things, you look at what's been made, look at how it's been made. Romans 1 is the history of the universe in a chapter. Christians should know it. Our text lands right where that letter of that university professor is. There are invisible things... ...but we can still find our way through competing views... ...and conflicting truth claims. Look at how God has made things. Sexual relations aren't a mystery. Look at what's been made. Look at its design... Gender isn't mysterious. Look at what has been made. There is no excuse, Paul says, for not knowing God's revelation. These things are clearly perceived through what has been made. My point is, Romans 1 deals with more than just God's judgment on sin and man who suppressed the truth. We studied that. But Paul carries the logic over into invisible features of sexual relationships. And the same argument, the therefore in 24, links the whole text together. It's not imaginary. And he says there's there's a created reality. Look there, and you'll see God's intent and design. That was a lot of work for Sunday morning. Did y'all stay with it? Let's pray.